Hey to all you fish enthusiasts out there. Whether you're an avid angler or just curious about fish, we'd like to welcome you to Fish of the Week. It's Monday, April 5th, 2021, and we're excited to talk about all the fish. I'm Katrina Liebeck with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in Alaska. And I'm Guy Eero and aspiring trout bump. And today we're going to be talking about rockfish. Our guest today is Brittany Blaine, who's a fishery biologist with the Alaska Department of Fishing Game. Welcome, Brittany. Hi, thanks for having me. Basics first, like why is this class of fish called rockfish and about how many species are we talking here in Alaska waters, Brittany? So, so rockfish are, are in the Sebastes family and, and there's about 30 of them in uh, different species or over 30 in Alaska. They tend to like rocks. So that's part of the reason they're called rockfish. So you have black rockfish are your Sebastes melanops and your yellow eye rockfish is your Sebastes ruberimus. And I may not have pronounced them perfectly, but that's how I say them. Good enough for me. And the reason we pick these two is because there are two really distinct groups of rockfish here in Alaska. You've got your pelagics and your non-pelagics, with black rockfish being a pelagic species and yellow eye being non-pelagic. So, Brittany, we're hoping you could give us just a little bit of a quick understanding, um, you know, what the difference is between those two types of rockfish biology-wise. Pelagic typically means relating to, like, the open sea versus non-pelagic more of a bottom-dwelling type. Pelagic are typically a midwater schooling species group. They're found throughout the water column, typically close to rocky structures, hence the rockfish name again, but they can also be found up at the surface. They tend to congregate more than a non-pelagic, you know, versus a non-pelagic. They're typically the bottom dwelling species, and this is your yellow eye and quite a few more. They're found near the ocean floor, again, rocky habitat or boulder-strewn habitat. They tend to be in smaller schools. Sometimes they keep to themselves. They hide more than a pelagic species. Some of them are really deep dwelling. Some of the species are. There's a short raker and rough eye that tend to, to be even deeper in the water column. And also pelagics aren't usually as big and they don't live as long. They still have a long lifespan of seven to 30 years on average uh, versus a a yellow eye, yeah, okay. non-pelagic. You know, we typically say 15 to 75, but the oldest documented yellow eye was, I think, close to 120 years old. My goodness. So some really old souls. <laughs> yeah. So some of these fish are kind of keying into, like, maybe a certain area versus others are roving around in the open ocean looking right, for yep. food. Okay. When it comes to the life history, I mean, rockfish are an amazing species in general. So reproduction-wise, for instance, rockfish actually copulate and they give live birth. So wow. there's not this lane of eggs and fertilizing. They actually do give live birth. And the copulation, it varies a little bit between the two, but January to March is when we typically assume that the copulation timeframe is going on. And we see gravid fish, so fish that are either, you know, full of eggs or starting to re- release larvae from anywhere from April to July. And um, they all give birth to a lot of fish. I mean, we're talking thousands, millions of fish. And then that larvae, after it's released, tends to be kind of swept away, um, the survivors settle on the ocean floor, hiding kelp, eelgrass, or rocks. And then as the juveniles mature, they move into deeper habitat. So for folks listening and wondering what these two species look like, how would you describe them for ID purposes? And do the juveniles look any different compared to the adults? Sure. Yeah. So when you look at the juveniles versus adults, they look very similar. So with black rockfish, they're basically a dark colored grayish black fish. 
typically actually in the whole pelagic assemblage, you mostly identify those as the, the black or darker colored fish. There's a few exceptions where some are kind of a, a yellowish or olive color, but typically it's more black or a dark gray in color. And it, it does look similar to, for those that are familiar with bass, it, it does look like one. Um, yellow eye, complete opposite. They are a bright yellow fish, yellowish orange, I guess you could say. Historically, they'd actually been called the red fish is kind of how a lot of the, the non-pelagics are identified in general because they're a, a reddish, orangish, yellowish color. And typically yellow eye get bigger. Um, the one exception when it comes to the juveniles is yellow eye, when they're in the um, kind of the juvenile stage, you'll see they'll have a white stripe across them, sometimes two white stripes, and that's the way to identify them when they're younger. Typically, those aren't fish that are reproducing yet, but sometimes they're getting close and you you do at times see gravid ones at that time. What are your recommendations for folks in terms of how to get familiar with all the different species? You know, are there some resources that people can use to get better at identification? So when they're out fishing and trying to figure out if they've hit their limit on pelagics versus non-pelagics, like just, yeah, some advice for folks, I guess. So here at the Fishing Game, what we've done is we've produced these handouts that are really great that we've given out to a lot of anglers. In our regulation booklet, we have, you know, the most commonly caught species identified pretty well with some real loose identification features to help you identify the different species. But really our focus is to have you, you know, know the difference between the pelagic and non-pelagic, which again, the the more colorful ones are typically the non-pelagics. So, you know, when we get into the fishing part of the show, I'm sure that swim bladders are going to come up. If you're not super familiar with fish anatomy, a swim bladder is a special organ that most fishes have that allows them to stay neutrally buoyant in the water column. You know, when you catch a rockfish, a lot of times you're actually going to end up seeing some of what's normally on the inside actually come out. It's quite gruesome, particularly if you catch a yellow eye. For folks listening, is that the swim bladder that comes out? Is it the organs? I'm just wondering if we can have a little bit of a discussion about swim bladders and how rockfish's anatomy comes into play when they come up from a depth to the surface. When people catch a rockfish and it comes to the surface and now it's positively buoyant, they float on the surface when they're released because what happens is that swim bladder is expanded within and can't escape the body cavity because it is a closed swim bladder. So the gases inside the swim bladder have expanded Sometimes it's ruptured, gases are stuck in the body, their stomach pops out, their eyes pop out. Sometimes you'll see actually a little bubbling on their body cavity, like gases trying to just come out wherever in their body they can. Um, if it's a gravid female, you'll see that the, the eggs are coming out. So all of these injuries, it's called barotrauma. It looks awful. And so what happens when people are sport fishing now, they've caught this fish and let's say they can't keep it. So say you're out there, you know, fishing, and you caught your bag limit. So you can't keep it. Um, You release it. And so you throw it on the surface and it floats. What we've done for quite a few years now, it's actually about 12 years now, we've done some studies on how to deep water release a rockfish. What we've found is that if you release a rockfish back down deeper than 100 feet, it can survive. So you can take, and it's positively buoyant, you can actually drop it back down and now it's able to survive and swim away. It's mind-blowing to me because they just look awful when you catch them, but it is possible for them to survive if they are actually released back down to depth after capture. Are there descending devices that people can use that are readily available? Are there other methods? I've heard of people basically just taking like needles and stabbing fish. That doesn't sound as good for catch and release. But what, what, can, what, what does the everyday person need to take out on the boat with them? 
Yeah. So there are things you can just call it stabbing with. They call it fizzing or venting. Um, we don't recommend that here in Alaska. I know for snappers and other areas, it's been recommended here and there, but deep water release mechanisms are what we suggest. And actually as of 2020, it's now required in all of the state of Alaska that anytime you catch a rockfish, if you are releasing it, you're required to use a deep water release mechanism. So there's a couple options out there for you. What we did in a lot of our studies, we actually took a jig, which um, the jig hook took, it's a, you know, you've got your bend in the hook and coming off of it, you've got your weight at the bottom, call it a 12 ounce weight on it. 12, you know, typically you'd take it and you'd fish with it, you put a little uh, wiggle tail on the end and fish with that. But instead you would take, and in the bend of the hook, you would, you would tie your line to the bend in the hook. And then you could actually attach the hook into the mouth of the fish and it's, it's weighted. And then you can, you know, open the bale on your reel and drop the fish back down to the bottom. So that's one method of deep water releasing. There's some other different options out there. There's a, a product out there that actually has a pressure sensor. Um, it's got a little clip. You clip on the lip of the fish and it's weighted as well. And when it gets down to a preset depth, it'll actually open up and the fish will be released and can swim away. Um, another option that I actually really have started to like using when I'm out is um, I take a milk crate, like a plastic milk crate that... Um, you know, it doesn't have the top on it, but I turn it the other way. So it doesn't have a bottom. I tie a line to the top. I hook some dive weights to the sides, you know, zip tie them on. And then if the fish is on the side of my boat, I can chuck this milk crate over the top. It's weighted and it causes the fish to go back down. And I have about, you know, hundred feet of line on just a rope. And then uh, I pull it back up after it goes down and the fish will swim away and, we know that they survived because we did some studies on yellow eye specifically, and we actually tagged them. And over three years, we recaptured them, and we know that they could survive following this deep water release. Oh, that's cool. Very cool. Hey, everyone. One thing that we want you to always keep in mind, regardless of what it is or where it is that you're fishing, is safety. Every week, we're gonna give you a tip or two that you can use to stay safe while you're out on the water. Most of our safety tips to date have centered around angling activity taking place on the ice or from shore. However, as temperatures warm up, more opportunities will become available to fish from boats. So with that in mind, today's safety tip is to always wear a life jacket when you are fishing out on the open water. If you ever find yourself going for an unintentional dip in the water, you're going to wanna to be wearing some kind of flotation device regardless of your abilities as a swimmer. A life vest will help you conserve energy if you need to swim to a boat or to shore, and will even keep you buoyed up if, God forbid, you find yourself knocked out when you enter the water. Some of the jackets they're making now are really lightweight and comfortable and will inflate only when they impact the water, so there really isn't a good reason not to wear one. You can also attach other items to your life jacket that can aid in your rescue, including whistles, reflectors, and knives. Many marinas and boat launches have jackets that are free to rent, so if you don't own a vest, check and see if there are any available to use. In terms of, you know, strategy when folks are fishing, I mean, we talked a little bit about the biology, um, you know, they're using rocks for structure. Do you have any advice for folks that might, you know, be interested in trying for rockfish but aren't super familiar? Yeah, you know, rockfish for a long time have always been kind of a, a bycatch to people targeting halibut and lingcod. Um, really lingcod a lot because when you're fishing for lingcod, you're typically on the rocky structure as well. So you you know, are hoping for a lingcod, but you're more likely to get into a lot more rockfish. But in general, you know, jigging. So 
you know, typically the same way I would, I'd try and target a lingcod. I'd look for, you know, some rocky areas. Rockfish specifically, what we've really found is you find some steep rock walls. Um, you can get a, into a lot of different species. I like to, you know, drop my line down to the bottom. Once I know I'm on the bottom, try and keep it as close to the bottom as possible. Jig up and down. Adrift. Um, I don't typically anchor up. The amount of weight you need when you're fishing for them, I mean, it's going to depend on what the tides and the wind is doing. You know, yeah. you might be out there, you know, four or six ounces of weight, or you might need 24 if you're, you know, and the same goes for lingcod and, and halibut as well. But if it's, if you just want to catch rockfish, I typically um, like gear. I mean, something you need use for, you know, salmon fishing, you know, you don't need, you know, your, your heavy duty halibut rod. Cause also, you know, sometimes, you know, they're just lighter, they're smaller. You can feel them easier when they hit. And as far as, I guess, you know, lures and bait and things, I mean, rockfish eat everything, the live, dead. And, you know, a lot of people try and always focus on bait. I, I love using lures, jigs, yeah. flies. Um, my favorite is a shrimp fly. Oh, it's cool. nothing special, but it's, it's a great one. It typically is up off, not on the very bottom. So I'd like to have a shrimp fly up on my line, maybe a foot and a half, and then have a jig on the very bottom. So it kind of got two different things going. Hmm. You just use like super heavy sinking line for the shrimp fly? Are you actually using like a fly rod or are you just putting a shrimp fly on? I'm not gear. using a fly rod, but you, you, you can, when the black rockfish are on the surface, you can use a fly rod and try and catch them. Um, but no, this is, it's, it really looks like, um, I don't know if you guys have talked about sockeye fishing yet, but the coho fly, they call it. I mean, it's nothing special. It's just a little hook with a little bit of material on it. And it's just coming off a loop off the side of your main line. You're going to be fishing near structure. Is there anything that you can do to, it, it, well, one, is gear entanglement around this structure any sort of a problem or not? And if it is, is there anything that you can do to make sure you're not contributing to any of those issues? Sure. Yeah, that's tough one because, yeah, you are you are around the rocks. You know, I like to just be careful, you know, when I'm jigging, if I start to feel, you know, I'm coming up on something, you know, reel up a little bit, stay off the bottom a lot so you don't, uh, you don't get your gear stuck. But you will break off. I, I like to use a, a heavy line, like a braided line. It tends to break less. I can typically retrieve stuff. Sometimes you got to move the boat along a little bit to try and get your uh, mm -hmm. your gear back. But uh, that's the one of the troubles of fishing around the rocky area. You will lose some gear typically. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Keep that lure kind of active at the bottom so you're not just letting it sit and really embed itself in a rock. Yep. Um, yep stay active. That's always key. Yep. Pay attention and stay active. So in terms of eating this fish, I mean, I think rockfish are some of the best tasting fish around. And that's, you know, why we pr primarily target them. When we go into Prince William Sound in April, I mean, we're usually shrimping and then trying to catch a few rockfish for lunch or dinner in between sets. And really, I guess my favorite way to eat them on the water is we'll make ramen noodles and throw a, fe a fresh filet right into that and you know, you can kind of look down on ramen noodles, maybe, but it is amazing. It's just like hot and salty. And with the fresh fish filet in that, it's like the best way to eat a rockfish, I think, actually on the water. But I'm kind of curious if you have some favorite recipes or just, you know, yeah. What, do you, what How would you describe eating a rockfish and the type of meat they have and stuff like that? I'm going to have to try that one. That sounds interesting. I'm, I'm a very partial to, to rockfish tacos. So that's one. I also having kids, I like to make little, little nuggets. 
I like to eat them fresh, you know, or as soon as possible. They don't freeze nearly as well as your halibut and lingcod will. I've also tried, and, and this is one that, you know, folks kind of frown upon sometimes or don't enjoy, but, you know, cooking the fish whole. So if you just gut it and then uh, do kind of an Asian style and do, uh, you know, some limes and cilantro and, you know, some sesame oil and stuff and, and bake it in the oven, then you're getting as much meat as you possibly can off the fish. So Brittany, it's been great having you on. Um, you got a wealth of knowledge about rockfish, uh, super interesting information about their biology and swim bladders. And we'd really like to thank you for joining us today. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks. Get out there and enjoy all the fish. Thanks for listening to Fish of the Week. My name is Katrina Liebich and my co-host is Guy Iro. Our production partner for this series is Citizen Racecar. The show is produced by David Hoffman, co-produced and story edited by Charlotte Moore. Post-production by Garrett Tiedemann. Publication facilitated by Kelsey Kors. Fish of the Week is a production of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Alaska Region, Office of External Affairs. As the service reflects on 150 years of fisheries conservation, we honor, thank, and celebrate the whole community, individuals, tribes, the state of Alaska, our sister agencies, fish enthusiasts, scientists, and others who have elevated our understanding and love as people and professionals of all the fish. <laughs>